Uh, I am super pleased. I'm Paul Whitcover, the Dean of the um, Online MFA, and I'm super pleased to welcome as my guest, Melissa Hart, who's an instructor here. And Mo Melissa has, has been my co-host as long as I've been doing all of these events. But finally, I'm we're taking her out from uh, behind the curtain, as it were, and putting her on the hot seat. <laughs> so... <laughs> Melissa, normally I would give an introduction, but I think I should let you give the your your own introduction. So. Oh yeah, that's fine. Sorry about my technical difficulties. Teams historically hates me, and now Microsoft Edge hates me too. I think I must have like upset Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg or somebody. I don't know. Anyhow, I'm thrilled to be here. I am the author of seven published books. They're all uh, traditionally published because I'm really kind of too lazy and overwhelmed to independently publish. And I don't I have think lazy is an adjective that I would use to describe you. <laughs> overwhelmed. <laughs> okay, have, there you go. Yeah, I have two more books coming out next year, but I also write uh, a lot of magazine articles and essays op-eds for newspapers and that's really what i wanted to talk with everybody about tonight usually uh, i teach at writing conferences around the pacific northwest and one of my most popular workshops is how to build your platform your platform and your paycheck by publishing short essays articles short stories and things like that and what i mean by platform is all the ways that you are visible in the world as an author. So I guess that's what I'd love to chat about tonight, unless Paul wants me to talk about something else. No, I'm very happy to, to hear you talk about that. We are going to talk about a few other things. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I want to, you know, I, I want to um, uh, recommend your, your books. I want to make sure that, that people know your books. So maybe you can throw your website into the chat. Oh, yeah. And and we can um, and and while she's doing that, I just want to, um, you know, some of you have had Melissa as an instructor. She's an incredible instructor. She's an incredible writer. And I recommend you you check out her her novels and other publications. Her most recent novel, the title of which I always get wrong. That's it. Okay. Um, Daisy Woodworm changes the world. That's it. And that and that has won uh, an award or two, I believe, as well as having received some some uh, some powerful uh, reviews. So, yeah, and a little bit of book banning, too. Yes, exactly. Hey, a little bit of book banning. That never hurts. Never hurts. Always a good time. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, so we'll talk a little bit more about that. But first, I want to, you know, let you talk about the subject. Um, we'll discuss that a little bit that that you came to talk about today and we'll take questions about that. Yeah, that's fine. Um, that sounds great. Thank you very much. I'll just I'll just say since I mentioned a book ban that that my newest book, Daisy Woodworm Changes the World, is upper middle grade. So <clears throat> excuse me, for kids between the ages of say 13 and 15 or 16. And it did get banned because one of the minor characters has two moms. I grew up with two moms. Never occurred to me not to write a character with two moms, but 
I was at a local library doing a big presentation to many, many families, and a couple of families marched their kids out right before my presentation so that they wouldn't be um, tainted by my content. So, you know, I could have been miserable and angry and upset, but instead I pitched an essay about the experience to HuffPost, uh, and I'm I'm acquainted with the editor there. And he said, oh, yeah, I'd love to publish this. So <laughs> I made some money and built my platform further off of that debacle. And it was fun to get in on that conversation. Yeah, and that Look, debate. that's yeah. the best kind of revenge. I think so. I think <laughs> a paycheck, a paycheck is the best kind of revenge. Yeah, paycheck and publication, the best absolutely, revenge. Absolutely, absolutely. So I feel like people emerging writers and and those who maybe have one or two books published they don't realize that magazine and newspaper editors and in some cases radio programs like NPR um they're hungry for content and you're the one that can provide that content for them so they must have our essays, short stories, articles to keep afloat, um, you know. They've got writers, all that space to fill. Yeah, staff writers are getting laid off constantly and more and more editors are relying on freelancers. Uh, those are people who are not on staff, but rather independent contractors for the magazine or newspaper. And I find it a, a wonderful way to get my voice out there and to build up interest in a particular book that I have coming out or one that I've just published, I don't think enough writers realize that you can do this as well. It doesn't matter if you've never published anything. Editors are hungry for fresh new voices and it doesn't matter how old you are or what you've had published. If you pitch them something that meets these three qualifications, it's got to be a new idea or an old idea treated in a new way. It has to be relevant to that particular publication's readers, and it has to be surprising in some way. If your essay or short story or poem or whatever meets those three qualifications, editors want to hear from you and and they want to pay you. The very first short piece I ever wrote for publication was for Woman's Day of all places. I didn't know anything about Woman's Day. I had just written a short essay that I thought might appeal to them and they paid me $2,000 for 700 wow. words. Yeah, so I I like to enable other writers to realize that these avenues are open to you as well. So um, my short pieces have been in the New York Times and CNN and Smithsonian and the Washington Post. And I wrote a critical analysis of South Park <laughs> and jokes about flatulence from Chaucer to Terrence and Philip for the Chronicle of Higher Education. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> like a PhD topic. Doesn't it? <laughs> Farting in literature across the ages. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but this goes to show editors will publish anything. Right. I cannot tell you how many pieces I have had published without plagiarizing myself about our dearly departed cat 
that used to steal the neighbor's laundry in a three block <laughs> radius. These people will publish anything and pay well, you for it. To, to be fair, that's that sounds like great a great story. So. Well, yes. When he brought me a lime green Victoria's Secret bra in my size, it became yeah. a great story. <laughs> <laughs> so let me let me ask you a question. I mean, you mentioned like the editors are hungry for this content. Yeah. Um, how do you how do you pitch them? And what is the difference between this kind of pitch and the kind of pitching that we're teaching in our um, MFA? Our program does such a good job of teaching writers how to pitch their novel in a query letter. That is exactly the same kind of letter that you would write if you had an idea for a magazine article or a book review or a profile of a person, place or thing, exactly the same kind of query letter. Um, sometimes if you're gonna publish a personal essay, mostly editors want to see the complete essay, no query letter needed. But sometimes like in the case of Insider, which just bought one of my pieces, she wanted a query first and then the whole piece. Mm -hmm. So in general, for anything that is not a personal essay or or creative nonfiction, you want a query letter exactly like we teach it in the MFA program. You go, you know, the first paragraph is exciting and it hooks the reader with something new and relevant and surprising. It outlines the parameters of the piece you're proposing, word count, working title, anybody you might interview for your article. And then you go on to talk about what readers of the magazine or newspaper will learn from your proposed article. Then you have a bragging paragraph that tells why you're the perfect person to write this article. And then you get out. In the case <laughs> of a personal essay, you send the whole thing prefaced by a very short cover letter, like dear so-and-so, Below, please find my 700-word essay, scintillating title. Thanks so much. Sincerely. Okay. Yeah. In and out. Yep. And you and you never send attachments unless editors request. You always put correspondence in the body of the email. And mm -hmm. I say the very first thing these overworked uh, editors and agents or editors see is your subject line. So I like to tell people to come up with a phenomenal headline or title for their essay or article that has equal parts conflict, surprise and story promise and have that title be the first thing editors see in the subject line of your email. So it might say query colon, and then your scintillating title. And then mm -hmm. how can they say no? And I'll give you an example of one of my titles that just sold. It was best first date, 600 pounds of frozen rats and a baby barred owl. I mean, wow. how could you say no to that? But no. The editor was looking for pitches on best first dates. <laughs> I guarantee nobody else gave her that pitch. No, no, oh. Oh, that's great. I mean, it, I, I think that's a very particular skill, though, to be able to write, to craft those kinds of headlines or or subject lines. So and like in many skills in writing, it's one that can be learned. Mm -hmm. How would you how, how how would you advise people to develop that skill? 
start looking at the headlines of both articles and personal essays in places like salon.com and slate and even the creative sections of the new york times and your favorite literary magazines because titles and headlines have to focus they have to um, function as clickbait these days as well a really good example of an editor that does this well is Noah at HuffPost Personal. He has mastered the art of the clickbait headline. Mm -hmm. And don't get too attached to your headline. You may you may work so hard on it over one or two or three hours. It'll probably just get changed anyway. But it's still got to be good enough to grab the editor's attention. Right. And honestly, that's it's that's really its sole purpose, isn't it? Who Mark's Mark uh, has a comment in the yeah. chat. That's exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. <laughs> yep. <laughs> maybe maybe local man regrets summoning Cthulhu to child's birthday party. Or something. <laughs> Talk about your story promise. <laughs> yeah. So the other thing is, I mean, you're not just going out there and, and you know, saying like, well, I've got I'm working on a novel. I need to earn some money while I'm doing that. Uh, so here's a bunch of ideas that I'm going to just kind of throw out there and see what sticks to the wall. Mm -hmm. Instead, it seems like you're pursuing more of a strategic plan, which is that my next novel is going to be around about X. Right. Yep. So I'm going to re in the course of researching X, for example, Yep. I'm going to learn things that I can pitch as articles. And it, yep. as I'm doing that, I can also lay the groundwork for the reception or publication of my novel. Right. Because in the in the in the line, you know, the the bio line that would accompany your article, you could say something like, you know, Melissa Hart is hard at work on a novel, blah, 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 about blah, blah, blah. Right. You so are it's absolutely. all it's all tied together. I'll give you an example of how I am in the midst of that right now. I'm working on my first historical novel, and it's based on the lives of my great grandparents who ran away separately to join the circus in the early 1900s. They met, they did not fall in love, but they got married so they could take their act to vaudeville theaters across the country. If you don't know what vaudeville is, please just think of it like The Muppet Show. The Muppet <laughs> Show is vaudeville. And they flew from theater to theater in an um, airplane and later went overseas to entertain with the USO um, and then took their acts in their 60s to county wow. fairs. Did, did they tell me they ultimately did fall in love and nope. they never they never fell in love. They were just nope. they were just partners. Yep. Business partners. They did have a daughter. I yeah. don't know how that happened. <laughs> but the thing is, as I'm researching and writing, I'm writing short pieces as well. And it's less calculated and more a product of inspiration and passion. And so as I began to research, uh, my great grandmother left me boxes and boxes of their promotional materials. Wow. So as I began to research, COVID hit. And so I wrote a piece for a magazine called Next Avenue about self-care and how everybody was, you know, giving themselves manicures and pedicures and baking the sourdough bread and all that stuff. And I was looking 
at pictures of my naked great-grandmother from 1919 and wondering what on earth is going on here. And so that was my self-care. That was my well, distraction. Why, why, also, were these, why were these pictures, why was she naked in these pictures? I still don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know what is going on there. All I can say is that maybe she was going to be a burlesque performer, right. which was like vaudeville with nudity. Yeah. Uh, and she ended up not doing burlesque. burlesque. But then um, I'm on assignment right now for Hidden Compass magazine to write about vaudeville as an art form that is a mass of contradictions because it embraced everybody. And my great grandparents had friends from all over the world and people uh, with people who were differently abled. Uh, people of different ethnicities, people of different genders and sexualities. And yet the art form was also deeply racist and deeply homophobic. And mm -hmm. and so to give you an example, Jewish people, Jewish performers would go on stage and they would they would make money off of jokes about Jewish people. And so, and bl this is wild. Black vaudevillians performed in blackface. And so I'm writing about these contradictions. Um, I also visited a couple of vaudeville theaters where I live in Oregon and got a tour and learned some more about the theaters and their history. So I'm working that all in as I look to answer whether or not I should be glad and happy and proud that my great grandparents were a part of vaudeville or whether I should be ashamed. And so is that so, is that like the the driving question that is motivating your your writing this book? No, not no. It probably should be. Um, it's no, but it's definitely driving this essay. Mm -hmm. And and then finally, I'm a little bit obsessed with this one friend of my great grandfather's. I wish I could show you the picture. Maybe if there's time, I'll show it to you. But I came across this photo of this. This man from maybe the 1960s, and he's in a, you know, 1960s jacket and tie and shirts, and he's in my great grandparents' backyard, and on his thumb he has balanced a Pekingese by one paw. Wow. <laughs> and he turned out to be Buddy Hughes, who was in vaudeville under the name the Fantastic Mister Everything, and he did all the different juggling, wire walking, dog acts, everything. He ended his days in a um, Silicon Valley strip club doing his dog act in between the nude review. So wow. I would like to write a short piece about him. He might, he might be in the novel as well, but um, just that's how my mind works. And that's you can fantastic. do this too. You can What's do this too. Do you, do you have a do you have a working title for the novel? Yeah, it's called The Circus Wars. Oh, nice. Yeah. Because there were circus wars and they were awful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's <laughs> nothing more terrifying than an army of clowns attacking each other. <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> no, they used to kill each other's lions. They used to uh, kill each other's animals. Yeah. Uh, it was horrible. Yeah. Just brutal. But if if any of this has intrigued you, look at your work in progress and make a list of the topics and themes that you might be able to pull out to write short pieces about anywhere, anything from 
personal essays to historical essays to how-to articles for writing magazines. Like, I could very easily write an, a how-to about how to do historical research. Um, think about what you could write for a travel magazine pertaining to your book or a woman's magazine or a men's magazine or a cooking magazine. This is why I don't sleep at night. <laughs> well, let me let me ask you another question, because I feel like sometimes a, a fiction writer might be engrossed in their novel and they'll be uh, and, and it's, it's a novel that will require require a lot of research, which they do. And they come across all kinds of interesting tidbits and factoids, but they think to themselves, I can't take myself out of the novel because I'll lose momentum or I'll lose my inspiration. So how are you able to, I mean, you personally, how are you able to kind of, um, you know, put these, this research to use in the way that you've described while simultaneously maintaining the momentum of your novel in progress? I'd say that's a great question. I mean, honestly, it's why it's probably going to take me three years instead of mm. a year and a half to write the book, because I insist on going off in a couple of different directions every so often. And obviously that pulls focus. But at the same time, it allows me to do more research and get paid for it since I'm getting paid for the shorter pieces. So right. for me, it's a win. Um. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I have the luxury of time, but I suppose I could be uh, struck dead tomorrow, so <laughs> I could be deluding yeah. myself. Yeah. yeah. You never know. I mean, writers have to have to have to write as though they have all the time in the world. Uh-huh. I, I think. Yeah. So you mentioned a minute ago that you were on assignment for a magazine. Uh -huh. What does that mean? Well, I wrote a query letter to Hidden Compass which is one of my very favorite magazines. It's online. The uh, women who run it specialize in travel, history, sociology, things like that. And they pay really well. They do a lot of multimedia in conjunction with the text. So I wrote them a query letter and um, they ignored it because it was so bad. And so I looked at it six months later and I revised it completely. And then they paid attention. It happens. And uh, yeah, you're, and, wait a minute. You're you're a pro. So how could you write a bad query letter? Uh, it happens. You get busy because you have a teenager who um, who suddenly can't drive the family car because she ran it into the ground, and you have to be mom chauffeur again. Or <laughs> or it's a you have purely hypothetical case. I'm purely sure. hypothetical. <laughs> or everybody in your house gets COVID for the third time, and you have many, many setbacks, and your brain is only half functional. Uh, maybe it was COVID brain. Hmm. I'll, I'll I'll plead COVID brain for the bad query letter. But I wrote a revised one, and I said, Oh, I'm so sorry for that bad one. <laughs> Here's a good one. And they said, yeah, we love this. And so they sent me, the editors of Hidden Compass sent me a contract, which I looked over briefly and signed. And then they gave me a deadline, which is this Friday. And we're not going to talk about that. And <laughs> I am writing to that deadline for the rough draft. I'll submit the rough draft. They will have plenty of edits. I've heard through the rumor mill that they're pretty heavy handed with their edits because 
They want all of the pieces on their magazine magazine to have the same tone yep. and feeling. And so then they'll send it back. I will read their edits and grumble and moan and shake my fist at them and go out for a run and then come back and dutifully make their uh, corrections. And we'll do a little back and forth and then it'll be published. So where in this whole process does the money come in? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the money <laughs> comes in twice in this process, which is unusual for a magazine or newspaper. They will pay 500 upon publication and then they do a crowdfunding for oh, wow. each of their pieces with video uh, of me explaining what motivated me to write the piece. They also link to all of my other published pieces that might be relevant. And they um, they put this crowdfunding campaign out for a month and then we split uh, whatever they raise, which could very easily be another 500 to $2,000. Wow, that's yeah. a pretty good deal. Yeah. Because mo- usually, I guess, in the, in the magazine world, um, and I suppose this is true of um, online journals as well, uh-huh. you're going to get either get paid on acceptance or on publication just once, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You get paid on publication. I I don't know if I've ever been paid on acceptance. You get paid on publication or you get paid like three months after. Mm-hmm. I wrote a I wrote a piece that was kind of a labor of love for a magazine recently, and they said, we're going to have to pay you in six months. And I thought, you know what, that's fine. That's fine. I, I wouldn't usually be OK with that, but it's for a good cause. Yeah. Yep. But but, you know, not to name names, but I know that that you have been associated with magazines where payment became a problem. Yeah, payment and, became and then- non-existent. So what does a writer do in that in that kind of situation? You've got like a regular gig, you know, you, you've you got everything on paper looks like you're in an enviable position um, yes. and you don't want to cut ties too soon because it because it could be a steady gig. So yeah. what what do you do then and how do you know when it's the right time to, to cut The magazine in question. I was contributing editor for this magazine for 15 years and they began to have some trouble with money. And I'm not sure why, but one day I logged on to my bank account, which I don't usually do, um, that's a problem, and found that they hadn't paid me in months and months. And I I contacted the editor and said, what happened? She said, oh yeah, this is a thing. They're not paying me either. And so I remember long ago, my mother, who was a journalist, said one of the most powerful sentences a writer can use is, dear so-and-so, my lawyer and I feel that there's been a misunderstanding. (laughs) (laughs) So I threatened legal action and they kind of bluffed and they said, we'll pay you a little. Well, I mean, they owed me like $8,000. And so... I I had to use the threat of of a lawyer again and the money sort of trickled in, but I could not in good conscience keep that gig. I just couldn't do it. Yeah, Yeah. I I had a gig one time, um, probably the best best magazine gig I've ever had. I was writing for a golf magazine and they were sending me all over the country and into the Caribbean to play these golf courses, just beautiful golf courses, high end resorts and everything. so and they would be trips that would take like a week. So a week out of my month, I would be out, out on the road playing golf, oh. but they never but they would not pay. 
So it was a the bizarre situation where I was being wined and dined and traveling like a king. Yeah. But I wasn't earning any money. Right. And, the, and the time, that time that I was away was eating into the amount of money that I needed to earn to pay my rent. So ultimately, right. I had to like just say, no, I can't I can't do this anymore. I, yeah. I, I didn't think about threatening to bring in the lawyers. I should have done that. Yeah, it was my mom's idea. You can have it. <laughs> <laughs> if I, I mean, if I need it, I'll I'll use it for sure. Yeah, yeah. We are so vulnerable as writers. I've had a couple of thesis students who've been burned by so-called publishers. Yeah. Who charge them thousands to edit their work and then disappear. Well, that's. Uh, I mean, we try in the in the MFA, as you know, to to safeguard our students against yeah. those kinds of scams and yeah. predatory, um, you know, business people. Yeah, um, yeah. But they are out there. There's no question about it. Um, yeah. And even even uh, a, a you know a reputable magazine, the 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 vagaries of publishing are very fickle and and um a magazine that that is um in good standing that has a record of prompt payment and seems like a very stable in terms of their subscription base and everything yeah you don't know what's going on behind the scenes and Never. and suddenly you can find out like you know half their writers aren't getting paid on time like they're like they're prioritizing who gets paid and yeah. and how much and when and and then the whole edifice comes down that's also important information to know. I see somebody's asked a question about how to develop a thick yep. skin when pitching. Well, the first thing you have to understand is if you get a rejection from a magazine or newspaper editor, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. They very seldom tell you, oh, we just we love this piece, but we just purchased a piece almost like it. So we can't publish two similar pieces or if we published your piece, we would lose a key advertiser that's keeping us afloat because your politics don't align or we're having trouble paying our writers or we're about to go bankrupt or your piece is gorgeous, but it's got a trigger that resonates with a particular editor who won't be able to edit it. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a million reasons that you might get rejected that has nothing to do with your writing. It's super important to keep that in mind. Here's yeah. here's something from Aaron who says, I received my first rejection letter yesterday, actually. I was so stoked, <laughs> celebrated with a good bourbon. <laughs> That's the right attitude. There's the best TED Talk that I send my students sometimes. There's this man who set out to to get rejected every day of his life for a year, Gosh. not just writing, but like everything. So one of his stunts early on, and Paul, you may have seen this video, like he went up to some stranger's house, knocked on the door and said, may I play soccer in your backyard? I mean, just bizarre stuff so that he would learn to hear no and develop a thick skin for when it really mattered that he wanted something or requested something. It was just so strange. Yeah, but fun. So yes to the bourbon and the celebration of the rejection. Yeah. My no, that's it. that publication, huh? I get, well, I wonder what that magazine was called. Four Stripes, I maybe. I never heard that before. Yep. 
So, so maybe I'll, can I throw out a couple of resources? Absolutely. So if you're looking for literary magazines to publish in, nonfiction and fiction, I like newpages.com. I didn't, I'll put it in there. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I really like newpages.com. And if there's any middle and, well, no, K through 12 teachers in this group tonight, there's a whole section of new pages for magazines that publish young writers' work and also contests for young writers. So I really love the generosity behind that website. I also like the free newsletters funds for writers which comes out on fridays for free once a week and that offers editors looking for fiction and nonfiction submissions as well as fellowships and residencies and lots of fun things for writers i also like the the once monthly blog practicing writing but that author also updates her website with fun things for writers twice a week. So practicing writing. And finally, and well worth the $5 a month, is Opportunities of the Week. And in this case, the woman Sonia Weiser, who runs Opportunities of the Week, calls Twitter every single day for editors calls for submissions all over the world, compiles them all into an email and sends it out a couple times a week. And I have sold so many fiction and nonfiction pieces because of that particular newsletter. Just because, you know, you maybe you wrote a piece, a little essay on making Frito boats in Southern California when you were a kid. You don't know that Bon Appetit magazine, I don't know if that's around anymore, Bon Appetit magazine is looking for nostal like essays on nostalgic childhood foods. But but uh, lo and behold, on Twitter, somebody puts out a call for this and you've got an essay that fits that spot. So those are my favorite places to look. Oh, and, and how often, writers. And how, how often do you look there? Well, she sends out her email bulletin twice a week, so I look at it twice a week, and it's always my reward at the end of a day of writing and teaching, because I find it fascinating not only to look for opportunities for me, but opportunities for my students, past and current, and also it's great fun to see what editors around the world are looking to publish. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a real education. I want to circle back to something that you mentioned because I see somebody in the chat has the same question as me. What the heck is a Frito boat? That's hilarious. Come on. Seriously? People. I've never, I've never heard of it. Is this a West Coast thing? West yeah, Coasters, chime in. You take your snack-sized bag of Frito corn chips. You cut it along the top so that it's a boat. You spoon warm chili over it. Top it with cheddar cheese, olives, sour cream, onions, and guacamole. Get oh, okay. a spoon, and you got yourself a meal. Well, that sounds great, but I was picturing a boat that was made out of Fritos. And... No, no. Okay. Aaron, that is blasphemy. It is not a Frito pie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, walking taco, sure. <laughs> that was actually my first book trailer for my very first book was me in my kitchen teaching people how to make a Frito boat. 
because there were recipes in my first memoir and that was the lead recipe. It is wow. ho- hokey as hell. Yep. I bet it's delicious though. It got a lot of attention and it yeah. got speaking gigs. <laughs> <laughs> let's get the Frito Boat Lady in here. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm so happy to answer anybody's questions. Yeah, please, uh, please put some questions into the chat or into the Q&A. We have both options are available. Um, one thing, as you're thinking of questions, one thing I think a lot of writers don't realize when they're starting to pitch shorter pieces is that you can always, um, in your query letter or your cover letter, mention the presence of high-resolution images to supplement the story or article. And editors love it when you can sort of be a one-stop shop and give them text and images, and they will often pay for the image uh, or or a couple of images as well. I've had lots of photos published, and I'm no photographer, but, you know, you can tell what it is in the picture. <laughs> right. But you must have also had to develop certain skills as a photographer in order I guess, to... Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I do, I do know how to take a decent photo. Yeah. yeah. That's true. No, that's, that's a great piece of advice. I mean, oh, I guess you always have to carry your camera. And of course, these days it's all on your phone. I mean, do you use a special camera or do you just use your phone? I usually use my phone, but sometimes mm-hmm. I trot out the special camera. Yeah. I mean, if National Geographic photographers use their iPhones, I can use my Android, right? I think so. I don't think there's a rule against it. There's a great Um, question. Uh, Danielle, is it okay if I answer? Absolutely. Magazines that I'd recommend (laughs) for submitting articles about writing. Uh, Yes, Uh, Poets and Writers Magazine and Writers Digest. And brevity, my keyboard isn't working because I unplugged it. Okay. Uh, I'll I'll type that in. Sorry. It's so funny not to be like maniacally typing in the chat. I know. It's a a very different experience, isn't it? Usually my job. Brevity magazine is a wonderful magazine about writing and teaching tolerance off. (laughs) Often has <laughs> often has articles. I um I would not. How do I say this diplomatically? I I would choose a publication other than the Writer Magazine at this point. That's all I'll say about that. Okay. Other questions. <laughs> Um, well, as we're waiting, there is one other thing I wanted to ask, um, ask you, Melissa, and this is, you know, um, um, well, here's a good, we'll just go, we'll just go for this question from Shonda. How do you publicize? Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, okay. I feel like it's important for a writer, no matter where you are in your career, to have a basic website. And I love our MFA program for insisting that our thesis students make one. It can simply be a page on WordPress. You just need a basic one page web presence to show a bio in the first or third person, a headshot, so an author photo and a way of contacting you. 
It makes you look professional and it will be a repository for your published articles. You can also link your blog to it if you're blogging. Um, I just think it looks great. So that's one way to publicize. But then I publicize on every form of social media and not well. I'm horrible. <laughs> I mean, I like social media. I really do. I like what's going on on TikTok. I, I, I like Twitter, though I'm getting a little scared of it. And so I, I do publicize and I tag the magazine or newspaper and the editor I've worked with in my posts. I also do a lot of publicizing of other people's writing, as well as film and art and things like that. It's what we call literary citizenship in our MFA program. And it means all the ways that you're helping your colleagues to get their work out in the world. And a side benefit of publicizing other people's writing is that people see your work as well or see your name out there. And so it's really a win-win for everybody. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to buzz down the, the, the Q&A here because uh -huh. in the chat because we're getting a ton of great questions now. Oh, so that's here's great. one from Aaron. Um, you mentioned having an essay that meets an editor's needs. In that case, do you mean that you're submitting your previously written works or do you mean referencing previous work to rewrite an updated original piece? Actually, both, depending on what is on my on my laptop. Sometimes I have a piece ready to go that got rejected by editors a million times a year ago. And this is a new editor and a new era. So let's try it again. And sometimes <laughs> they say yes. And other times I will write a new piece. If I see a call for an essay submission and it's 700 words, I at this point, I've trained myself to write a professional essay in an hour if it's 700 to 1,000 words. I'm, I've, I've been doing it for 22 years. So yeah. I have a really good sense of what editors want. I can't really do anything else in the world, but I can do that. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's a that, uh, that's something to be proud of, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, so here's a great question from Elizabeth. She says, do you send out the same article to multiple mags at once or wait for a rejection from one before sending to another? If I've worked with the editor a lot and we have a working relationship, I will wait until I hear a yes or no from that editor. All of the other times I will send to several editors at once. And here is why because sometimes I have to wait months for a yes or no from an editor. One time I had to wait four years. We don't have that kind of time as writers. So I do submit simultaneously both personal essays and query letters. And I understand that if an editor says yes, I have an obligation to email all the other editors and say, I'm sorry, this is no longer available for first rights publication. Yep. Um, does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. Um, that's a little bit different because than the fiction world, because in the fiction world, a lot of most magazines, I think, are 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 you know um, pretty rigorous about no simultaneous submissions, which I've always felt to be really unfair to writers I've, for exactly the reason you've. And expressed. I've always ignored that completely <laughs> on this website because you know we all ignore it and at this point pretty much every editor i know knows that the submissions are simultaneous so i think we've moved away from that except for the new york times they haven't moved away <laughs> um 
here's a here's a question about websites. Uh, does a, a medium account suffice as a website? Oh yeah, yeah, it's a web but presence. Don't you to be on medium? Don't you need to be a member? I mean, don't I you need so. to access? So maybe it's not as uh, accessible a you know Good a home base point. for a writer as some other. Good point. Like Substack is free, right? Substack. Uh, I think I don't know. I think so. Uh, so I see your point, Paul. If you have to pay, you're less accessible to some of the agents and editors and readers you're trying to approach. Um, there's a question about the favorite, your favorite piece that you've ever written. Oh, golly. Well, oh. I like all my funny pieces. I really do like the South Park piece for Chronicle of Higher Education. Um, I love the piece I wrote for Brevity about my mom and how she taught me to be a writer. I wrote a piece for a magazine called Dame that I love, but it's absolutely heartbreaking. Mm. And it's going to break your heart as I tell you. It's a piece that's initially set at Cannery Row in Monterey, California, where we would go when we were kids with our mom and there was literally a chicken a live chicken in a tic-tac-toe game and you could put in a quarter and play tic-tac-toe against this trained chicken and they existed across the country it was called bird brain one couple trained these chickens for this game and somehow i wove in the story about these games and these chickens with the story of how my mom in 1979 left my abusive dad, came out as a lesbian, and a homophobic court system took her away from us. Oh my sent, God. And sent me and my younger siblings back to live with our father, and we never got to live with her again. But we stayed close. We got to see her two weeks every month. Wow. So I, yeah, so. And how, weekends, how, old, how old were you at that, at that point? I was 10. Oh, that yeah, is sad. Was five. It was. Oh my really gosh. Fun. So I love that piece because I think it's artistic and poignant and powerful and weird. I always like a little quirkiness in with my heart wrenching memoir. Yes. No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, gosh, we're coming to the end of the of our of our chat. So I, there's something I want to ask you, like. We we have MFA students who are in in our audience. We have students from the MA, really from all over the university, oh, yeah. and there may be some BA, you know, creative writing students or students who are still in their undergrad, um, uh -huh. thinking about applying to the MFA, for example. Now, um, Melissa is one of the people when you apply to the MFA, your your application is going to be reviewed by you know a certain number of highly trained specialists of of whom Melissa is one I'm another so Melissa what if you're considering applying to the MFA what should you do in your application what should you not do that is a great question the 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 number one thing i see is failing to address the writing prompt for the the sort of short personal essay introducing mm. us to a writer. I think we ask, tell us about an influential book or piece of writing and what it meant to you. I can't tell you the number of people who ignore that question and go off in the weeds. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't influence my decision, but I'm still thinking, 
wait a minute, you got to follow the prompt. I have to follow the yeah. prompt. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is um, not not learning to punctuate dialogue correctly. Before you submit your sample chapters, yeah. you've got to learn how to punctuate dialogue and you got to spell check and and grammar check everything. That is where, just critical. Where is a good place for somebody? Because I, I to be honest with you, I I see that from people who have already been in, who are accepted into the program, and sometimes I see it farther into the program Me than too. I would like to admit. Right. So what what where can people go to to learn how to punctuate dialogue correctly? Well, I will freely admit that when I started teaching, I didn't know how to punctuate very well. And the first class I ever taught was a class on grammar and punctuation. So I got myself a copy of the Idiot's Guide to Grammar and Style, and I love it. But I also really like the Grammar Girl website mm, and the yep. Purdue Owl website. Yep. And the, that's kind of my go-to. And Grammarly works for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, and get tutored. I like that, Kaylee. Yeah, go to academic support and get tutored. And I mean, the other the other way to do it is to, you know, pick up a traditionally published book from your yep. bookshelf, a novel. Yeah. Uh, don't pick one by Cormac McCarthy and Ooh. then just look at how dialogue is formatted. Yeah, and that is the correct way to format dialogue because it's yeah. gone through a copy editor and a proofreader reader if it's coming yeah. out from a traditional publisher. And I want to say that I love that idea of choosing a mentor text, a novel that you aspire to write, and just boldly taking a highlighter pen and a ballpoint to it and just annotating the heck out of it. I'm yep. doing it right now with a historical novel. It feels sacrilegious to sort of highlight and write all over this 350-page book, but it helps. What what book are you doing that to, if I it's might ask? It's The Great Alone, The Great Alone oh. by Kristen Hanna. It's one of her newer epic historical novels set in Alaska, and it's set in the 1970s and 80s, and it's exactly what I'm trying to do with my historical novel, just in terms of tone and yep. theme. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely know what you're talking about. I mean, I, yeah. I have... I have I guess I have mentor writers, you know, that I'll go to if I get stuck on a particular yeah. passage or something in my own work. How does yeah. so-and-so handle this sort of thing? Yeah. Who's one of your mentor writers? Oh, gosh. Um, John Crowley is one, a okay. science fiction writer. And another one is uh, Gene Wolfe. Um, oh, right. I, I, go, I go back to them quite a bit. Uh-huh. How about you? Who's who's your mentor writer? Well, right now it's Kristen Hanna. Yeah. Um, her book, The Nightingale, was amazing. But I just read this incredible book about an octopus. And did you read it, Paul? Did you read The Mountain in the Sea? I don't believe I have read that. O octopuses and AI and dystopia and science and philosophy and consciousness. And that book was amazing. Wow. That sounds right up my alley. You're going to love it. Yeah, I'm going to check it out. The Mountain and the Sea. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Great title. Yeah. Octopi. So, Octopuses is also correct. I looked it up. <laughs> so um, we, I think we have time for one last question. If anybody wants to throw something out there. 
And while you're thinking about what to throw out, I just want to say that I see you writers. I am juggling parenting and teaching and all sorts of other things. And what you're doing is phenomenal. And you have my absolute respect. This is a hard gig. But we're doing it. We're having fun. So here's um, here's here's sort of a, a question. Um, writing timeline suggestions plus balance act. Yeah. Not quite sure what that means, but well, don't that's... wait for don't wait for inspiration. You have to train yourself to put your butt in your chair and and just be inspired. And you can do it. I used to train owls for educational presentations <laughs> at our local Raptor Center. And I would always have a dead mouse in my pocket for my owl so that it would sit calmly on my glove and I'd give it a mouse. It was not going to sit on my glove unless I gave it a dead mouse. You're not going to write unless you find your dead mouse. So what's your dead mouse? (laughs) (laughs) For me, it's at least one latte and usually two lattes, which I have learned to make because I was going broke and then a long run. So now, now, now I'm always going to be wondering what you have in your pocket now. From not dead mice. <laughs> Sometimes a lot of cat treats, but not dead mice. <laughs> I have a lot of pine cones because I'm studying to be a naturalist. So a lot of detritus from the outdoors. <laughs> wow, this is this has been a very uh, inspiring and um, uh, I don't know surprising chat. <laughs> I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have guessed, you know, it's kind of like uh, uh, Gollum uh, having to guess what Frodo has in his pocket, right? I never would have guessed that. Somebody says, I can't tell if she's kidding. No, I'm not kidding. Go to my website. There's essays (laughs) about my training owls. I'm not even kidding about it. And here, here we have. This is a good thing to 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 end the night with, I think. Uh-huh. And again, from Aaron, who's been very active in the chat, he says, "Great chat, thanks, guys. Looking forward to answering the prompt and applying for the MFA program, Semper Fidelis." So awesome, Aaron. I hope you do indeed apply. You're gonna hope- love it. It is a brilliant program. It is smart. It. I got my MFA. I had no idea what to do next. We fully prepare you for a career as a writer. This is a great program. Thank you for that um, unsolicited testimony. Oh, sure. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you for being our guest tonight. And next next month we'll be back with, uh, you'll be uh, my co-host again. So it's not like you won't be back. Um, And we're gonna, we have a good one in store for you next month too. I hope everyone will come back and join us. And until then, Uh, I bid you all a fond good night. Bye, good night.